Well, hi everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Godcast. My name is Father Alex. I'm the vicar of St Matthew's Church in Burnley, the host of the Godcast, and also the author of Our Daily Bread from Argos to the Altar: A Priest Story, which is my book, which is out now and available on Amazon and uh, Waterstones and wherever you get your books from. Uh, so do check that out. Really looking forward to this interview uh, that we have now for you with Scott Kyle. Scott is uh, a very well-known actor who's appeared in shows such as Outlander and Kajaki. He's also um, in, in a wonderful play or a play that's going to hit the road. And we'll be learning about that uh, in the interview and a little bit about his faith as well. So I do hope you enjoy this interview now with Scott Carl. And if you do, then please subscribe and uh, share it with friends and loved ones and family and uh, get the message out there. But for now, enjoy the Godcast with Scott Kyle. Well, I'm delighted to say that uh, joining me on the Godcast today is Scott Kyle. And uh, I've done a, you've seen the intro, so Scott is a well-known actor and uh, gentleman from Scotland. How are you doing, Scott? I'm very well, thank you. How are you doing yourself? I'm okay. I'm all right. Thank, thanks very much for coming on the Godcast. It looks looks like you're parked up there. You're up in Scotland as we speak. Yes, I am. And uh, so I've, I've just ran from one, one meeting I was having there. And this is the quiet space I could find in the car. So, yeah, I am. <laughs> so let, let's start, Scott, by unashamedly plugging your play that's about to go back on the road after a bit of a sabbatical. Just mm -hmm. just tell people about this this play that's been out there for some time now. Uh, okay, well, so first of all, if people want to find out a bit more information about the show or tour dates for it, um, the best place to find that is on my website, which is www.scottkyle.co.uk. So that's Scott with two T's and it's kyle.co.uk. So that bit means I don't forget that. So, uh, so yeah, the the, the theatre show. So um, a short history on it. I found the play in a library almost two decades ago. Uh, we started off touring it in the back room, a uh, working men's clubs and pubs and stuff, because the theatres weren't too keen on it. Over the course of a five-year period, um, we built the biggest show in Scotland. Uh, this was without any financial backing or any financial support. It was literally um, just me with a backpack on, putting leaflets through letterboxes until we filled the theatres. Um, and uh, over the course of the five years, the, the show won accolades. I won the Stage Best Actor Award at the Fringe in Edinburgh. And uh, and it went on to be Scottish theatre's great success story in recent times. Um, after five years, the writer exercised his right to take the show back. So uh, so I lost the rights to the show. Uh, that was 13 years ago. And, uh, and in, in recent months, just maybe four months ago, uh, I was approached by the writer and said, would you like to take the play back? So it was a wee bit of trauma there and a wee bit of overcoming some of my uh, past uh, trauma uh, with the show. So, uh, but, but ultimately I decided to take the show on. But uh, the premise of the show and the reason I did take the show back is I had a bit of unfinished business with it and, uh, and it's an incredible piece of theatre. Um, so the show is the story of uh, two rival football fans. So we've got Billy from the Rangers side and we've got Tim from the Celtic uh, side who find themselves banged up on the morning of the old firm match uh, for non-payment of fines. <clears throat> So they've been locked up by Harry, the jailer, uh, the warden who's who's put them in the same prison cell uh, to make his life a bit easier because he's he's got to clean the cells when he finishes his shift. He wants to get off, and uh, and he puts them in the same cell. So what happens is both of their wives have uh, went to the local book bookmakers and put every penny they have on each 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 respective side to win. So ultimately, whoever wins the match, that's the one that their wife will collect the winnings, pay the fine, and they'll get out. Uh, but there's many twists and turns on the way to the end of the play, not to mention that Harry, the, the, the turnkey that's locked them up, 
Uh, he, he's waiting on an important phone call about the health of his grandson. His grandson's in for a big operation. He's not too well. So as the story unfolds, Billy and Tim persuade Harry to let him watch the TV through the hatch in the prison cell. But ultimately, they get a wee insight into Harry's life as well. And it starts to build a bridge between these two men as they, they come together to support another human being who's having a bit of a tough time at the moment. So that's the yeah. short answer. <laughs> and it's called uh, singing I'm No Billy, He's a Tim. Just explain that to people who, you know, from maybe from Lancashire might be watching this. Like, what 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 does this mean? What is it? Well, singing I'm No Billy, He's a Tim, it's actually, uh, there's a there's a song and it's, it's singing I'm No Billy, I'm a Tim, which the, the kind of Celtic fans would sing. So Des Dillon, when you see the play, it'll make sense. But he's, he's done a wee play on words with the title. Um, but also, as I said at the start, Billy represents the Rangers fans, so he's part of the Billy boys, and Tim represents the Celtic fans as well. So, uh, so there's, there's loads of uh, plays on words within the, the title of the show. But ultimately, if people are coming along, they're going to laugh an awful lot. They'll maybe be crying, they'll be singing, they'll be dancing. Uh, there's a lot goes on in the, the ninety minutes of the of the show as it unfolds, and and ultimately we've got a you know a, there's an anti sectarian message all the way through the show, uh, and a real you know for for a humanity story, essentially. Um, I've done multiple projects over the years. One of them was I was playing a soldier in a, in a true story. And one of the things was how far the soldiers would go for their mates. Well, in this, this is this is people being able to put aside their differences for the sake of another human being. And uh, although Des Dillon, the writer, who's wrote this incredible piece of theatre, has used the vehicle of Rangers and Celtic, and uh, in this instance, it's the sectarianism between Catholic and Protestant, it could just as easily be uh, set today and you could put a, an Israeli and a Palestinian in the prison cell and play the show out. And it's about two people coming from opposite sides having to find a way to come together through through the humanity towards supporting somebody else who's having a tough time. Um, it could be most of you capulet if you went back to Shakespeare times and uh, there could be Sunny Shiite, you know, kind of there's references in it to uh, Croatia and Serbia as well. So there's, there's lots in it. So what was the initial attraction, Scott? Was it the fact that it, you're, I'm guessing you're a football fan, are you? Or, or, or... So yeah, um, growing up, I, sh- I, I, never, I haven't shared the prison cell, fortunately, with anyone other than in the play. But uh, but growing up, I did share a bedroom with an older brother. So when I I, I found the play in my local library, uh, I graduated college as an actor and I w- I'd set up a production company because I thought that's the best chance to get my first job. And I found this play in the library and I read it and I, I could see the banter and the the tit for tat things that were going on in the prison cell. And I just thought that's like sharing a, bro- a room with my brother, my older brother. So, uh, so uh, first and foremost, I thought it was a great piece of theatre. Yep, big football fan as well. Um, and uh, and yeah, and, and, and it was something that I thought I could identify with and a story that I felt uh, anyone in Scotland, the grown up in Scotland, could definitely identify with. The nice thing about the show is it, it, it transcends just the football tops and it transcends Scotland because we've been to... Uh, Northern Ireland with it, be the Republic of Ireland, we've been down to England with it, um, and we're meeting fans from all over the world, so America, Canada, expats are all over the world, um, and also Rangers and Celtic are global brands, so yeah. there's an audience for this anywhere in the world. What do you, what do you think makes that Celtic Rangers such a hot rivalry in potato? Scott, I, I'm a big Burnley fan, and we have a yeah. big rivalry with Black. I'm, so, I'm sorry to hear that, Alice. <laughs> blame at the moment, brother. Tell me about it. But, you know, we've got a big rivalry with Blackburn Rovers, and and that is pretty uh, vitriolic, and it can get quite uh, tasty, uh, for mm-hmm. a better word. But and mm-hmm. I, and I've also had people on the Godcast. I've had Trevor Stephen on, who, who played for nah. mm-hmm. Lou McCarry, who played for Celtic, 
And mm-hmm. a Burnley legend, who perhaps wasn't perhaps so much a Celtic legend, Andy Payton, uh, came mm-hmm. on as well. And, and they all talk about this kind of extraordinary, um, entering an extraordinary kind of relationship between two clubs. Trevor Stephen was interesting because he, he didn't really know much about it. Yeah. He got there and he was like, people were encouraging him to kind of be part of it, but he, he kind of found it better to try and stay apart. What is it, Scott, that, that drives it now? I mean, because the sectarianism is... You know the collapse of the church in Scotland is not that you know doesn't mean it's there as it was. What do you think? I, th- I think it's like anything is people want to be part of something, so you know, kind of um, it's and, and and it's it's very tribal, and there is definitely something about getting together with your mates and singing and uh, and having a common goal and a common goal that you want to achieve. So the football teams are an absolute vehicle for that, which suits. And then I suppose uh, with the history of the clubs and the, the history in Scotland. Um, you know, kind of, um, of of Celtic being predominantly Catholic and Rangers being predominantly Protestant, just just adds the fuel to it and gives it the kind of perfect vehicle essentially for it. And uh, and yeah, and it becomes the tit for tat starts off for wee tiny things and then it grows into something huge. And I suppose that's the whole point of the the show and why it's it's really important and uh, and showing you. I mean, we we've, we've done workshops and stuff over the years with Now by Mouth and, and various different anti-sectarian organisations and. Unfortunately, over over the history and probably there'll be many to come that people lose their lives over these you know, like these sort of things. We went to Northern Ireland and and, and as, as as three young guys from Glasgow thinking we knew a thing or two about sectarianism because we grew up in Glasgow. When we went to Northern Ireland, we couldn't believe like the peace wall, you know, kind of was there. And, and when we spoke to to some of the the people there, they would say the peace wall the gates get closed four times a year. Do you know when? And I was thinking, well, probably Christmas, maybe New Year. And they revealed to us that the four times a year when Rangers play Celtic or Celtic play Rangers, decide if you want to frame that one. But uh, yeah, the the the, the, the kind of the dividing wall gets locked, and you can't you can't go from one community to another four times a year when a football game takes place in a different country is a bit mad. And what we realised, I mean, we went to the Northern Ireland with the show. And generally, we were worried. we didn't want to upset the peace process. You know, that it had been uh, had been kind of. Agreed when we were going over with the show, but what what the feedback we got from people was they were laughing, going, you know, we're watching two Glaswegians going, what's it got to do with yous? you know? And and what we we learned as well as a cast was people in Northern Ireland have had to live with the consequences of sectarianism. In Scotland, uh, there's such a thing as kind of like on the day of that match that it's not not so much it's accepted, but people the the, tri- the tribes get together either side of the city, and uh, and they they as I said to you they get tribal. Uh, they get they get all their venom and the blood pumping and everything and they sing and they say things and the the next day they would never repeat in the work no. workplaces but for no. that ninety minutes or whatever that that say that tribal that belonging to something yeah you know, that kicks in that animalistic instinct to be part of the pack kicks in yeah. to either side and what and what about you Scott were you, were you raised in a religious family did you have a religious upbringing or no I, I never had um, I never grew up with a father in our household uh, and my mum was busy working multiple jobs to just keep us fed and, and clothed so there wasn't a, there wasn't a, like a, an allegiance or a, a family side that went to if I'm being honest I don't even know that if, if my, I think my older brother uh, picked, picked Celtic as his team and I think I was two years younger and I think about him he picked Rangers just just to be the annoying little brother I don't think there was anything in that at all. And then as I got to grow older, you know, kind of um, like some of your friends would maybe go to the football or I, I was, was fortunate enough to get a free ticket to go to one of the games and that happened to be at Ibrox. Um, I, I, I've never been what you call like a supporter that goes to the games. 
I've not I've not grew up in a household that went to the matches. We never had the disposable income, but I've always enjoyed watching the football and cheering on the teams. And I remember I kind of grew up, uh, you know, as a kind of a Rangers supporter, grown up uh, in the years of nine in a row and stuff. And I always remember watching one of the the VHSs at the time. It was Brian Loudrop, the the Danish uh, superstar that, that played for Rangers. Essentially, he he said uh, when he was kind of asked about it, he said, well, "What do you think?" And he said, "I love football, and when it gets in more than that, it's not for me." Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And I, I could kind of identify that because I've got mates that were bo- mates from both sides, you know, kind of um, my, my my older brother, um, I was the, the god uh, the godfather at, uh, um, at the, the communion of the kids and I remember going up to the minister and I didn't know what to do. I said, sorry, I've not, you know, I don't know what I'm doing, I've never been here before and uh, the minister was let me know in no uncertain terms that uh, I should have been, I should have known what I was doing and I should have been to uh, the, the chapel before then. Um so yeah, but I'd never kind of grew up with any no any any steer if that makes sense. And yeah. and, and to be honest, to this day I'm more. Uh, I mean, I love watching football. I watch a lot of the English football as well. But um, I uh, I, I certainly don't uh, don't hold any of the any of the, the the views that are portrayed in the show. Um, are, are very much me taking on the the role of of Billy the character. You know, yeah. there's, there's and a lot and a lot of times in life, you, there's a bit of you in every part that you play because you're bearing your soul. Um, so there's, there's evidently a bit of any actor in any part, um, but uh, but I mean, uh, I'm I'm very much for coming together. That's why I love the play. I love the play. I like the fact that the guys can put their differences aside. Has the has the dialogue changed in any way over the years? Yeah, loads. I mean, obviously, all the players from 13 years ago are long gone. The managers are long, long gone. <laughs> um, but ultimately, the, the the arc of the story is is so. It could be a big compliment to Des, I would say it's, it's, it's perfect. It's an absolute perfect, um, perfectly written. But I mean, I'm saying perfectly written. I've been involved with the show for 20 years. Des had it in a drawer for 12 years before I ever seen it. So it's been 30 years in the making, this piece of award winning theatre that we've got. Um, and uh, and it's it, it gets updated with, with daily. I mean, if something happens today with a transfer news, the cast are in a WhatsApp group saying, you know, we need to change that wee bit and make that wee bit. And, yeah. But uh, but ultimately, the story is the two guys get locked up and uh, and they have, have to overcome their differences uh, to support the, the turnkey. Uh, and, and it's got all the hilarity and stuff of there being a live football match going on while the guys are in the cell. So uh, so it's, it's, it's great fun. It's great fun to be in and it's great to, to see. I mean, we've played to 3,000 people at the SECC. I mean, that's... That's uh, that's the energy coming off a crowd that big when they're laughing. You feel the wave of laughter. Yeah, you know it's, it's yeah. close to being a stand-up comedian with the big crowds as you yeah. like it. I think you can imagine. You know? Yeah, mm-hmm. and you've and you've your career's uh, pretty extensive, Scott, isn't it? What when did you know you wanted to be an actor? You, uh, you know, were you a really young kid or was it? I'd, I'd say, I, I, this this is where I mean I've I've done various projects over the year. Actually, I did a project in a in a church, and one of the things. So I'm coming from a theatre background. Uh, I was kind of working in a, a church as uh, doing an arts project with them, and I was kind of saying, "Now the theatre's kind of stole your gig." I said, "You were kind of, you were doing spoken word, you were doing singing, you <laughs> were doing coming together as a congregation, spoken word. Everything's all there. The magic's the same thing. The theatre took it, put a spin on it, and and uh, and uh, and even the you know the 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 communions. You got your your bread and wine. You know the theatres are selling their wine as well. But um, but uh, but yeah." I, I think I look at it as storytelling. I, I, even at acting, acting is, you know, it's, it's not a word I use to describe myself. I, I see myself as a storyteller and I think it's uh, it's ingrained in everybody. I think if you gave, if you gave anybody in the world uh, 10, 15 minutes of your undivided attention, 
what a story they could tell you. Yeah. And then it's a matter of picking the right stories for the right storytellers. So that's why I take no offence at all when I go into an audition and I'm not cast. I, I trust a higher power that those roles are allocated for the right person. So yeah. I go in and I can be relaxed and, you know, it's like I don't even need to desperately want the role. I just know that I, if, I, if I'm the right person to tell this story, then I'll, I'll be chosen or I've already been chosen. So I kind of look at it as, as a storytelling. But so and, and, and my point being there, sorry, was we grow up, everything we learn through storytelling and, and everything we do, we end up, we, we, we tell stories as we grow old and our, next, our kids, we're the storytellers in their life that educate them. So then you go on the stage, all you're doing is you're, ta you're taking on board somebody else's story and you're telling their story. Um, and, and I absolutely love it. I look at very, it's a very spiritual experience uh, being on the stage and, and taking on somebody else's worries and uh, their trials and tribulations for the period of it. Um, and it's, it's a, a blessing. Yeah, was 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 there anybody who really inspired you as a young guy as an actor? I was, uh, I I went to school with a couple of famous actors. We weren't friends, but they were at the same school. One was John Sim, and the other guy uh, was Lee Ingleby. And they they in interviews have talked about this guy who was called Brian Wellock. He was quite a, a, a gregarious, really colourful drama teacher, um, and we all we all thought the world of him because he was just fabulous. Was there anybody in your your early days, Scott, that that you could perhaps liken to Mr. Wellick. Yeah, I mean, but my drama teacher at Stonewall High School uh, was was Mr. Roy, so David Roy. Um, he's now lives in Australia, and uh, as part of some of uni studies, I read some papers that he'd written, which was quite interesting. So he was my drama teacher. Um, but I think ultimately, going back to the storytelling aspect of, um, I grew up watching Billy Connolly, who's you know one of the greatest storytellers of of our time. Um, and that I, I kind of watched that kind of stuff and thought, I love how he's telling stories, making people laugh, coming together and also overcoming a lot of things as well. Because Billy, Billy used humour to bring people together as well. Um, so, so yeah, I would say that's you know, the ultimate storyteller. Uh, and also there's another uh, kind of speaker that I, as, this was in my 20s, I kind of discovered uh, a man called Wayne Dyer. Uh, Wayne Dyer is a, 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 a spiritualist or a motivational speaker from America. Um, and and I, I used to listen on my night shift to Wayne Dyer and he had a very different outlook to life to anyone I'd ever met. Um, and, and and I think it was unique to probably my background. I don't think anything I'm about to say just now is would be unique to maybe any anybody watching or listening. But uh, Wayne Dyer was the first person I chatted about that you, you don't fail at anything, you produce a result. And I was like, I wonder what he's meaning with that. And then he, he gave the example of you put a golf ball on a golf tee and you swing and you miss. You haven't failed. You produced a result. It's what you do with that result. Do you, so do you decide now, there's no point in me swinging here because I'll never hit anything and you give up and you go and do something else or do you keep swinging until you hit the ball and it goes through a window and then you haven't failed either, you just get another result and now what you're going to do is keep trying to hit the ball now and stop going through people's windows with the ball until eventually you get to the stage where you're you're, you're, putting, you're, 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 get, you're getting the golf ball in the hole and yeah. nobody had ever, like I always thought, if I couldn't win the 100 metre race, I'd know how to run it. Yeah, I think it's about was... running from second. Yeah, you know, I'd th never met anybody that thought that way. And, and the, you're not competing against anybody else, you're competing against yourself from yesterday. So, I'm a better today than I was yesterday. So, the idea of the analogy now is, 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 uh, is I like to think I'm a teacher and stuff, I, I teach workshops and stuff and drama. Uh, I, I wish now, if I was in a high school doing you know, te teaching me, trying to get me to do the 100 meters, when I think I'm the second fastest, I'm not doing it, I would put on the board, I'd, I'd get everybody to run the 100 meters at a time, everyone. I'd give them their time, and in a month's time, I'd run the 100 metres again, and the, and the leaderboard would be on improvement. So you might have wee George, who ran it in 20 seconds, 
and everybody was laughing at him because he was the slowest. And then next next month, he knocks five seconds off his time. So he's above Usain Bolt because Usain Bolt can't improve. He's stuck with the world records. He's at the bottom of the pile. Everybody yeah. else is improving. And that, that's how I look at things because that means that everybody can improve essentially and get better and better as opposed to at the moment the leadership board would be he's number one, you're number two. Well, I don't want to be number two, so I'm not doing it. Yeah, it's really sense. interesting listening to you talk, Scott, because uh, I'm I'm very blessed that shameless plug-in. I've uh, published a book. Uh, it was well, hold, hold it steady so we can see it. Hold it it's, steady. Uh, it's called uh, Our Daily Bread from August to the Altar. And, and and it's been a joy that because of the responses that people write to you and tell you and and the feedback that you get. So I, the, the side of the, the storytelling is it absolutely resonates with me. But then also... I come from a retail background. The book's called From August to the Auto. I worked for August for 20 years. And, and a lot of the uh, improvements uh, that the company tried to get out of their managers, managers was through storytelling. Quite often they would have an actor or a, a musician or a sports person talking about some of those those very fine, subtle differences but from day to day to day to day. And, you know, I remember some um, uh, the swimmer, Adrian Morehouse, sells tells a similar story to what you've just described about those small improvements. So, so it really does resonate me with this, what you, what you've been talking about. But then, then of course, Scott, you, you go on and have, you, you appear in some really big stuff, don't you? I mean, where was your big break, Scott, in, in the acting world? It's so difficult to watch your big break because, you know, what does it say? It take, takes uh, 20 years to become an overnight success. <laughs> you know, my first big break was was uh, was meeting my now wife, you know, when I was uh, when I was 16 years old. Um, because at the age of 21, she said, why don't you go to college and, and do college? And then I went to do acting at college. I didn't even know what a monologue was. So my next big break was when the, the college lectures, I don't know if they took pity on me, and they, they, they let this kid that had turned up without a monologue without an addition piece to an, an acting course and they let me on the course um, yeah. and then get, getting finding the play is another break um, having my college lecturer helping us produce the show and coming on the tourways you know kind of and then obviously uh, we did Billy and Tim for five years I won the stage best actor award and then I got Angel Share so say, I, I, probably somebody out there would say that might have been your big break from other people's point of view doing the first movie uh, I, I got cast by Ken Loach who's a legendary UK British filmmaker and director um, and uh, and he cast me uh, in his movie The Angel Share, and uh, and that was a blessing. I think it was another blessing of working with Ken. His style of making movies uh, was very much storytelling. Of he he would give you a scenario and say, right, this is a scenario we're filming today. How do you think? What do you think? How do you think this would unfold? And he was asking for your input into the script, and he was asking for your ideas. And I really felt like you were making a movie with Ken Loach. There's been other times where I've been on projects, and you are definitely a hired hand to do a job that somebody's decided and this is how we want it said, this is how we want it done. With mm -hmm. Ken, it was like, let, let's try it all different ways. And then before he would before he would wrap and say we're, we're locking that off, he'd say, do you want to have another one and just go with whatever feels? And I love that freedom to go, right, I can, you know, you might not use it, but at least I felt that all my ideas and stuff were, were let out. I got a chance to show all I was capable of. And in the, in the editing suite, they can decide what they want to use. Uh, from there, uh, it was a very different project. I went and did uh, Kajaki, which is a British war movie. So it was by the producers of the King's Speech, so Academy Award winners. Um, and it was the story of uh, British paratroopers trapped in a minefield in Afghanistan. And I, I played a, a, a real person in Stu Pearson. And that was a different, a different thing because I was phoning Stu the night before the movie, filming the next day to say, this is what I've got in front of me as a script. 
is that accurate? Is that right? This is what I'm thinking of doing. Is that okay? Is that what you think? And then after that, I would phone him and say, this is what I was allowed to do. This is what I did. I don't know if they'll use it, but this is, I try to stay as true to what you told me as I could. Um, and then you go into Outlander and it's different. That's, that's probably the biggest thing, you know, one of the biggest American TV shows in the world. And I went in on season two. So they've already been doing it for a year, maybe two years. So they, all the relationships have been, you know, uh, form, for, formulated and stuff like that. So it was a case of kind of going in and trying to get on with everybody, be liked and get invited back. Um, so, uh, so I mean, they've all been wonderful experiences. So I don't, I don't know if there's one big moment because I'm on a constant journey. You know, get getting the playback, take, taking back the yeah. Billy and Tim show after 13 years is another break. You know, and there's been tough times as well. There's been times you don't get things, and sometimes that's a break that you don't see at the time. Losing the play was a break. I mean, the the opening, I'm a bit like you, Alex. I've I've been writing a book for five years, and the opening chapter of the book is the night I lost the play. I opened the book by saying I built the biggest show in Scotland on the back of a bag of leaflets on my back and I leafleted the whole of Scotland until yeah. we filled every theatre we played and we built the biggest show in Scotland and because I wasn't a great businessman and I was naive I didn't get a long term written contract in place for the show and therefore I lost my business one night just one night um, when, they, when the writer decided right, you know, the rights have expired I'm going to do it myself now but at the time it didn't feel like a break it didn't no, feel like it was a positive sure. thing but joining the dots looking back it was perfect and now getting the show back, uh, when I started writing the book five years ago, I had no idea I was going to get the playback. So I wrote the first chapter, not knowing that the last chapter was going to be getting the show back. Yeah. So I've got a, a perfect bookend to the story and a perfect that's... arc that I had no idea was going to be when you started on the adventure. And I yeah. think that's a metaphor for life, isn't it? Sometimes you end up back uh, somewhere uh, and you've grown. You know, is it The Alchemist by Paulo Coelho? You end up back where you started and you've the, 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 the purpose was you had to go through it to learn. Yeah, I've yeah. been having some quite philosophical chats with my brother about joining all the dots up in your life, and it and it's mm -hmm. quite interesting, isn't it? Okay, mm -hmm. Just just talking about Kajaki, um, Scott. I mean, I'm not, I don't watch a huge amount of films, but that is a film that, oh, it, it blew me away literally. I mean, no, no mm -hmm. of course, um, it was really intense. Was it was it as intense to make it as it was to watch it? Yeah. Yeah, we, we were we were in the desert for six weeks, um, and the 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 project is a fascinating project. Um, Paul Keatis and Pucker Films who made it, hats off to them. Um, anybody making a movie, uh, it's a huge project, and and they they scripted, and scraped, and begged and borrowed to get that movie made. It was, that's an incredible story itself. Um, but uh, the, the the MOD and stuff were, had agreed to sign up to to lend Chinook helicopters and stuff, stuff that you just couldn't get the budget for. You're not going to find the money for some of the stuff that we were getting free of charge, and then in the run up to the movie, I don't know if they've seen the script and that there was there was there was a court case and all that involved in everything that, that went on with with the real story, and I think they just maybe got decided not to be involved anymore. So the the production kept getting delayed. So when we went there, we were under a bit of time pressure to get it done, and also it's a real story. You know, you're you're representing someone who's going to watch that and be immortalized on the screen to all their friends and family, and the last thing you'd want to do is. You know the way the way the way probably Scottish folk people say oh, I've seen Braveheart and they go but that's not the real story that's not accurate that's Hollywooded we wouldn't have wanted any of the guys involved in the real incidents to have to explain a hey, MD they met that oh no that they they did no that's not what happened that was just Hollywood mm -hmm. so there was a real pressure on us to get it right and uh, and thankfully you know Stu Pearson who I played and all the other guys that were involved in the in the incident that we spoke to said it was 99.9%. You couldn't, I mean, they, they, when I was sending them pictures of the wadi that the Jordanian military had built for us, they were going, is that actual reference photos from the original 
uh, sites, and I'm going, no, this is what they've made. It's phenomenal. So, uh, so yeah, it was a huge pressure. Uh, thoroughly rewarding at the end of it when when you're sitting in the in the cinema with the friends and family and loved ones. And uh, and David Elliott, who played the lead in it, he played Corporal Mark Wright, who sadly lost his life in the in the events that that took place on that day. Um, he won the Scottish BAFTA for his role, and he, and he picked David Tennant and Robert Carlyle to the BAFTA. So that was that was really a nice icing on the cake because uh, David David had a he, he had the lead role in a movie, but he had the toughest role in the sense that um, I I could speak to Stu Pearson who I was playing, and I could ask him certain things, and I could even have a bit of banter. But the banter I would have with Stu, I'd say, "Look, Stu, if you see the movie and you think that it's not you're not very good in it." I want you to know that I've won awards for bad acting. So it's just that you're a bad paratrooper because I'm a really good actor, right? You could have a laugh. And genuinely, though, Alex, that was taking the pressure and, yeah. and, and stuff off of me a wee bit. And, uh, but, but David didn't have that with Mark because Mark lost his life. So David had to speak to Mark's fiance and he had to speak to Mark's mum and dad and stuff. And, and when we went to the, the night out, we're all, we're all meeting each other like a first date. You know, I was getting to meet Stu for the first time. David didn't have no. his guy there physically you know i'm sure he was there spiritually but he wasn't yeah. there physically and it was really nice for that david won the bafta for it because it was a huge responsibility and the and the weight of not just the men that were in the well mark's family first and foremost but the men that were in the wadi that day then the paratrooper regiment then the british military in general it was a huge responsibility on getting that right and i think david's felt that on his shoulders as, as the lead in it you know and, and he it was fantastic off off and on camera it was fantastic uh and bringing bringing everyone together and when you do these parts scott do, do they stay with you i mean you know i mean um you know after kajaki for example was there a, you know and you go home and you put your feet up for a little rest you know do, do you think my goodness do you think about war do you think about the effects of war you know just just explain that what well, it's like for an actor yeah but well as I said earlier on, there's a, there's a bit of your soul in every part you play, right? Because really it's about taking the mask off. To me, acting's taking the mask off and bearing a bit of your soul in there because people watch it and they want to believe it. So therefore, you have to put yourself in those circumstances. So, so and, and as much as I could be, I was in that minefield. It was my leg that got blown off when I stood on the mine as, as much as it could be. And I, say, I said that to Stu. We used to chat and I said, nobody knows what the men went through that day, right? Nobody other than the guys that were there. But we did six weeks of recreating that day. So we're, we're, we're as close a second as anyone will ever get. And there was moments when I was lying on the desert floor thinking, you know, my foot was buried in the soil and I had a kind of prosthetic leg on. And I was there for maybe eight or ten hours with the sun burning me while we filmed around about me. And uh, I'm thinking, Stu was here for real. You know, he was bleeding out. He, he didn't have the luxury of ice water and umbrellas in a five-star hotel. Uh, he was fighting for his life, you know. Can I, and I'm, I don't mean fighting his life with shooting, shooting weapons or anything. There was no, there was no, not shot fire in Kajaki. It was about fighting for your life to survive till till the rescuers came. Uh, trying to stay conscious, trying to support your mates. So yeah, I mean, and also, I mean, outside of it, I jumped out an airplane with Stu uh, to raise money for his prosthetic leg, and uh, he took great pleasure in telling me as a paratrooper he broke his ankles, various ankles. Um, before it, before he lost one of them, uh, with, with with the landing, and I'm like, oh, thanks. You know, now he tells me that was in the way up in the plane. He was telling me that, um, because if you don't lift your legs right in the landing, you can break your ankles when you're coming off the the parachute jump. So stuff like that, I'll live with me forever. Yeah. And the bond we have with the guys, uh, from the movie, I mean, we're they're all coming to see the show in London. They're coming to see my show. Uh, Sunday night in London sold out, and it's pretty much the whole Kajaki cast, the crew, the producers, the directors. So it's like a 
a VIP night uh, for, for all my pals. Great for you, wouldn't it? It'd be great yeah. to see them all. Yeah. And and <clears throat> I've I've loved chatting to you, Scott. But you t- you said earlier about you teach people, and um, you know, I, I I'm not very. I don't think of myself as very academic. I've always been a creative kind of person. Um, and I just wondering what you think about you know the way of ed- education of, of the arts, as it were. You know, I think. Um, you know, I, I see music not as important as it seems to have been once upon a time in schools, for example. And I wonder if that applies to things like drama. Um, what uh, you know, most people aren't going to have the success that you that you've enjoyed, but that doesn't mean it's not a good thing, right? I mean, it's a very important mm-hmm. thing, isn't it? Just say how you educate some of our young people in in learning about acting and drama. Well, I get, can I mention earlier on, to me, a big part of when I go and perform is I go and I, I meditate first and foremost, and I get my mind quiet. I, I ask a higher power to make me an instrument, you know, make me an instrument, give me the all the lessons I'm going to learn, even, and, I, and I, my, my mantra is going to thank you, so I say thank you, thank you, thank you. How may I serve? How may I serve this audience? How may I serve my castmates? Um, and uh, and I walk out of that stage and I, and I turn it over to a higher power and trust that whatever's going to happen was meant to happen. And even the nights that things go wrong, um, I know going out there that if they're going to go wrong, I'm grateful for the lessons I'm going to get. And I think when you turn it over like that to something higher than yourself, it takes the pressure off you. Also lets go of any ego you've got because you're going, whether whether it's great or it's not great, it's it's, it's, it's great, it's bigger than it's bigger than you are. So uh, I kind of start from there. And if you can kind of clear your mind of the ego and everything else and go back to the storytelling around the campfire, we used to, you know, it's a human necessity to to share stories. We used to sit around, you know, cave, cavemen and women sat around the fire, and the storytellers would tell a story, uh, and then it, it grew and evolved into using costumes and all different things. And then we invented obviously the, the radio, then the TV, and now people sit and binge Netflix. Yeah. To me, it's still the magical thing of sharing stories, and I think anybody can do that. And that's what I means I don't label it as a success or this or that. I I've played the roles I was meant to be. Hopefully there's more ahead of me, and if there's not, I'm okay with that as well. But there's a role out there uh, for everyone. You found this through the podcast. You're spreading a message and stories through the podcast, so everybody can do it in a different way, shape, or form. And I think the big thing is not to attach an outcome to it. Don't don't think that being an outlander is that's the goal, or being in a movie, or or or, or being anything. Just if you've got an audience and you can tell a story, you're successful. Then that's if you if that's because that's what storytelling is. You know, I've sat here and told many stories to you. I tell stories to the kids. I tell stories in the classes. I tell because that's you, you are you are you are a storyteller. Everyone's a storyteller, yeah. and I think everyone's got a great story. Yeah, and 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 it's so diverse, isn't it? I was thinking when you said before about Billy Connolly, Jasper Carrot was was my storyteller. Mm-hmm. You know, I I just thought he was so funny. But but I I mean, I'm I'm 54, uh, and I've only recently discovered some. Uh, I went to see Romeo and Juliet by Shakespeare mm-hmm. and I was in floods of tears and uh, and that is the diversity of storytellers isn't it, isn't it? well I, I was lucky enough I went to Milan and I played Romeo in Romeo and Juliet in Italy for six weeks at the Pico, Piccolo Theatre in Milan and uh, and it was it was it was my I went to, I went to college for three years and in those six weeks I think I got the best training ever from the Italians harsh lessons at some points because they're all athletes and they're all uh, very very fit and uh, and the director said British actors don't move that was the note that <laughs> the, the, the British it, it was a bilingual cast so there was uh, Italian actors and the uh, and British actors and uh, 
she uh, she said, you don't move, you act with your, your voice, you just use your voice, you don't actually physically move. And also the Italians are very expressive. So I learned loads there. Um, but one of the things that, that I went over and I was playing the, the you know, the romantic Romeo. Oh, but soft, what lights are you on on the brakes? And she said to me, uh, Romeo's in a gang, Scott. Right? And that's why you were cast. She said, uh, Romeo murders somebody in the story. And, and he's a young man full of testosterone and maybe he's been drinking or anything else he says. And when he climbs over that wall and he goes into that balcony and he sees Juliet on that balcony, he is going there to take the prize. He is going there to get what well, he sees, what he wants, and he's off. And the only reason that nothing happens that night is because Juliet's so strong and she talks him down. And I was like, wow, that's a very different take on anything yeah. I'd ever heard about yeah. Romeo and Juliet. And it really affected how it was played. So you had Romeo, the young man, full of testosterone, going in and going, right, I like what I see, I'm, 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 I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get it. And Juliet was having to go, well, if you're serious and you really like me, you, and come back tomorrow when you're sober. Come back tomorrow and we'll get married. You know, can I, that really changed the dynamic of how that was played. And, uh, and it's an incredible story. And going back to what I said about Billy and Tim, it could be Montague Capulet in that prison cell. You know, it could be Romeo and Tybalt. Yeah. They're locked together yeah. to sort it out. And Juliet's the way to raise the, the, to pay the fines. So so universal, I mean, Romeo and Juliet will, will, will be there forever because it's a, a story that everybody can identify with. You know, we've all fell in love and head over heels with somebody at some point. And uh, in, in the same uh, situation I say with Billy and Tim, there's all, everybody's in a rivalry. It could be your brother, it could be a family member. At some point, you have something you go, I can't stand that person. Well, that's Billy and Tim's that. Uh, and then you have to, you know, come together and, uh, and and grow up a wee bit as you go through the life. Yeah, so. yeah. Scott, it's been really lovely chatting to you. You're a, you're a top guy. And you've now I need to go online and just find out where you, if you're coming to Manchester or somewhere. I mean, you must be, right? We're coming to Stock, Stockport's the nearest. Oh, right. Well, I'm going to go on yeah. and see if I can get myself a ticket and, and come along and, and see uh, uh, and see it. And, uh, and, and wish you really well. I know you've, you've been promoting it and, and, and ticket sales are going well. So it's going to be a busy year for you. And then... Yeah, we've got we've got uh, we see we kick off uh, in April. We've got our kind of our first Scottish shows, kind of one of our warm up shows, um, at Glasford Community Hall. And then we're off to London uh, for two weeks. We've got Belfast already, so it's, uh, it's yeah, it's going to be very busy. I think we're we're on until October twenty twenty five, so I'm very busy at the weekends for the next two years. <laughs> oh well, good luck with it, Scott. Thanks, thanks ever so much for coming on the Godcast and. Anybody else? Um, hopefully, hopefully, people who enjoyed this chat and checking out. There's over 170 odd interviews with people from faith, people with no faith, musicians, authors, actors, politicians, something for everybody. So, Scott, for now, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. No worries. Thank you very much for having me. <laughs>